And sometimes we need to step back and say, well, what am I doing with what God has given me? What kind of witness do the material possessions that I have, what kind of testimony do they give to a lost world? Do you give to God's work? That's something the Christian is commanded to do in the first day of every week. Or do you hoard what God has given you? Hello, and welcome to Search the Scriptures, the Bible teaching ministry of Dr. Carl Brogy. Dr. Brogy is the senior pastor of Community Bible Church in Beaufort, South Carolina. Today, Pastor Carl is in the book of James, chapter 5, as he continues his sermon, which is titled, When Money Talks. We will see that James deals with the subject of possessions and how we should relate to things with a godly perspective. Let's join Pastor Carl as he continues in chapter 5. So James is dealing with this idea of stagnant wealth, and he begins to unpack it in verses 2 and 3. He moves past its cry to its witness. Let's read verse 2 and then part of verse 3. Your riches have rotted, and your garments have become moth-eaten. Your gold and your silver have rusted, and their rust will be a witness against you and will consume your flesh like fire. Now, in the New Testament era, there were basically three ways that a person would typically or could flaunt their wealth. One was food, the other was clothing, and the third was precious metals. The rich were those who ate well, they dressed well, and they spent their money lavishly. And so James introduces us to three basic ways which time and hoarding can rob a rich man of his wealth. He says here, your riches have rotted. And the word for rotted is always used, both in and outside of the Bible, of food or fruit that went bad. He's describing a man who hoards food, food that will inevitably rot. And again, it parallels the rich fool of Luke chapter 12. Remember that man, he tore down his current barns, he built larger barns so he could store all of his grains and all of his food so that he could sit back, take his ease, and eat, drink, and be merry. And of course, the day he made that statement, thinking that he had entered into this lush retirement, Jesus said he died. Now understand, nothing wrong with storing up grain or corn, but in the parable of the rich farmer, here was a man who hoarded. And that's what James is describing. Your riches have rotted, that is, they have spoiled. And the rich man, his God is gold, His creed is greed, and his motto is simply, get all you can, can all you get, sit on the rest, and poison it. And the implications on his heart are huge. The ramifications on his life are untold and that they can keep a man out of eternity because he lives only for the here and now. There are some people here today, uh, some people who should be here today who are not here, because they're working, not because they don't have any choice, but because they want to make more money. 
and their priorities are all out of whack, and they consistently forsake the assembling together of the brethren. Sunday is no different from the rest of the week. Then notice in verse 2, he says, your garments have become moth-eaten. Another way a rich man would display his wealth was by his clothing. And there are different words translated for clothing. In this particular word for garment, describe the upper garment of the outer robe. And rich people would often make those outer garments very elaborate. They would put silver threads, sometimes even gold threads, through the clothing. They would put jewelry and embroider it very, very fancily, fancifully, and they would many times pass them down as heirlooms. And they were so valuable in the first century that they could become a form of currency. And you see that in both the Old and the New Testament. As this slide reminds us, Joseph, who became the prime minister of Egypt, uh, blessed his brothers with riches. The Bible says he gave them changes of garments. Or think about Samson. He told a riddle, and he said, if anyone can figure out my riddle, I will give him 30 linen garments. Or think about Naaman. He came to the prophet Elijah wanting to pay him with 10 changes of clothes. Or think about the apostle Paul on the negative side when he gathers the Ephesian elders together in Acts 20. He said, I coveted no man's silver or gold or clothes. What I want you to see is that rich people often wore their wealth on their sleeves. And James is saying it's foolish to do that. People do it today. You know, you see some guy who's bragging with his $2,000 pair of tennis shoes. I mean, come on now, $2,000 tennis shoes. And we have this prosperity preacher who supposedly had a $5,000 pair of tennis shoes with his Rolex watch hanging off his wrist. By the way, I have a Rolex here. Someone bought it for me in China. They paid 10 bucks for it. <laughs> in fact, I gave one to my son, and he was working in the White House at the time, and they were at this meeting around the table with Dick Cheney, and one of his first man, his right-hand man, and Cheney's right-hand man said, Jeremy, that is a really nice watch, a Rolex. And he flipped his wrist. He said, it's just like mine. Is that new? He said, yeah, my dad gave it to me for Christmas. And he said, you know, I can, can I see it? And he took it and he held it and he said, I can tell the difference between a fake one and a real one. This is the real thing. <laughs> no, it was a $10 Rolex. But what I want you to see is that even setting your heart on clothing it can become moth-eaten. I had a suit in my closet that I had not worn in a long time. You know, it was a little bit outdated. Didn't really want to throw it away yet. And then one day I thought, you know, I think I'll wear it for this occasion. And out I took it, and a moth had eaten a hole in it. Now it was good for nothing. Think about what you have in your closets. Some of us have clothing in our closet that we've not touched in five years. We have so much in this country. And sometimes we, oh, we just can't part with it. We tend to hoard. And so we have bigger boxes, bigger garages, bigger barns, and what we call self-storage units, appropriately titled. And we begin to pile up all these things. And sometimes our outward actions are really reflecting an inward reality. Finally, wealth could be measured in gold and silver. Look at verse 3. Your gold and your silver have rusted, 
and their rust will be a witness against you and will consume your flesh like fire. Now, please understand that the gold and silver in this day could literally rust. When I was a child, I had a coin collection, and I had this silver dollar, so to speak, from Mexico, big, just like our silver dollar. And I said to my dad, will you look at this? It's rusted, but it's supposed to be a silver dollar. And then I looked at the silver dollar he gave me, and it was a little tarnished, but it wasn't rusted. I said, what happened? What's the deal? He said they use a lot of alloy in theirs so that it will literally rust. Well, understand the gold and silver in James's day was not as refined as the gold and silver in our day, and under the right circumstances, it would literally rust. And so James here is exposing the futility of hoarding wealth, and he personifies it. Notice their rust will be a witness against you and will consume your flesh like fire. Do you see what he's saying? The rotten grain, the rusted gold and silver, the moth-eaten clothing will bear testimony to the selfishness of your hearts. And then he says in verse 3, it is in the last days that you have stored up your treasure. Look at that word treasure. It's the Greek word thesaurizo. You can hear our English word thesaurus from it. You know, a thesaurus is a collection of words. It comes from the Greek. Well, he's describing here a collection of things. And some people, especially the rich, collect things the way some folks collect stamps. Here are these people collecting food and clothes and precious metals, not because they need it, but just for the sake of having it. Now, remember, he's writing to the lost, most of whom, or I should say he's describing the lost, most of whom will never read this, but he's describing such people and maybe some with a spurious confession within the fellowship, but he's doing that so that those who are saved might make proper application and take inventory. And so we would do well to take inventory. You know, when my dad died in 2007, I was charged with some of my other brothers and sisters to help get rid of some of their things. Now, they lived in the same house for 50 years, and we were moving our mother to a more suitable facility that she could manage, and it was a, with the basement that was fully furnished, and then there was three floors over it. We had four stories of stuff. We didn't really need most of this stuff. I mean, if you already have a couch, why do you need another couch? You don't need another bed. And so we sold most all that stuff. And I said to myself, and I said to Audrey, look, if the Lord doesn't take us before the rapture, I don't want our kids to go through all this stuff. I don't want them to open some drawer just filled with stuff and have to clean out our house. So we emptied out our attic. You can walk into my attic. There was a time you couldn't walk into it. (laughs) Now it's empty. Throw it up in the attic. Get it out of the way. Now it's empty. Some of us, if we haven't used an asset in 10 years, we're not going to use it in the next 10 years. And we would be wise either to sell it and invest it for the kingdom or just to do something with it. So James is dealing with this attitude of ruthless greed. Get all you can, can all you get, sit on the lid and poison the rest. That's their attitude. It's the attitude of covetousness. 
Remember what Jesus said in the parable of the rich farmer? He preceded his illustration with this command, beware and be on your guard against every form of greed. He's talking about greed. And if you read Colossians 3 and verse 5, it reminds us that greed or covetousness, same word used in Jesus' parable, there translated covetousness, is idolatry. When we catalog sins, we say, well, you know, homosexuality, that's really bad, and adultery, that's really bad, and premarital sex, that's really bad, and drunkenness and drug abuse, that's really bad, and, you know, arson, that's a wicked sin. But the Bible says covetousness is idolatry. You say, well, that's the 10th commandment. It may be the last one, but if you go home and think your way through it, the root of the other nine is found in the last one. You shall not covet. And it is an important commandment, and it causes people to typically break the other nine. Now, James is not talking about a businessman who's investing. The Bible does not necessarily condemn investing the goods that God has given you. Remember what Jesus said in Matthew 25, 27, that great parable? He said, well, you should have, you ought to have put my money in the bank, and on my arrival, I would have received my money back with interest. Nothing wrong with investing. When you read the parables of Christ or any word that he spoke, he only uses truth to teach truth. He never uses error to teach truth. He uses truth to teach truth. So he's not using an erroneous action. Nothing wrong with necessarily investing. In fact, there's nothing wrong necessarily with saving. The Bible admonishes us to save. Learn a lesson from the ant, Proverbs 6 reminds us. In time of plenty, the Israeli ant that you can study in our day, different from our fire ants, uh, those cursed things that came from South America and rubber tires. They attacked me this week. I must have gotten 10 bites on my right arm here. You don't want to see it this morning. In either case, you know, the ant, the Israeli ant, in time of plenty would store goods so that in time of need, she would have something. Now, understand, of course, there's more than one kind of wealth that the Bible speaks of. And I'm sure maybe some of you are sitting here this morning and say, well, I'm not guilty of hoarding. In fact, I have too much month at the end of my money. How can I hoard, pastor? And sometimes we need to step back and say, well, what am I doing with what God has given me? What kind of witness do the material possessions that I have, what kind of testimony do they give to a lost world? Do you give to God's work? That's something the Christian is commanded to do on the first day of every week. Or do you hoard what God has given you? Or do you give your leftovers instead out of the first of your wealth? Look, if you were arrested and someone had to examine your faith based on your checkbook and the way you gave to the work of the Lord, because where your treasure is, there will your heart be, would there be enough evidence in your checkbook for you to be found guilty? Listen, this is a very subtle thing. He's dealing with lost, wicked, rich people to get the attention of the righteous. And be careful not to look down on the rich man when we in turn might be holding back. Oliver Cromwell in the 17th century when he was leading that great country was told, there's no silver left to mint any more coins. And Cromwell responded, no silver at all? 
They said, well, the only silver left in our country is the silver that is covering the saints and the churches, those statues. He said, then melt down the saints and put them into circulation. And that's what needs to be done with some of us. Some of God's saints need to be melted down by the Spirit of God and put into circulation. There's all kinds of talents that God has given us, not just monetary, but if you've been saved on your spiritual birthday, He gave you a spiritual gift. And He expects you to use one of some 16 gifts that are operable today in the body of Christ in the local assembly. Some of you don't even go to church anywhere. You're not a member of a New Testament Bible-believing church. You should be. Because not to is to be disobedient. Of course, if you've never received Christ, that's your bigger need. Coming to church won't make you a Christian any more than sitting in a garage will make you an automobile. You need to receive Christ as your Lord. But whatever God has put in your hands, put it to work. Look again at verse 3. Your gold and your silver have rusted, and the rust will be a witness, a testimony against you, and will consume your flesh like fire. It's a bit of irony here if you think about it. They had saved and hoarded these things for who? For themselves. But the Scripture says the fire will consume, or you could translate it, eat, your flesh. They had saved it for themselves, but what they had saved was actually speaking against themselves. And of course, he's using imagery as he already has and as it's used throughout the New Testament to describe the place of eternal retribution. You say, you think God is going to send people to a literal hell? You better believe it. Now, understand, hell was never created for man. It was created for the devil and his angels. And if you go to hell, you'll be trespassing. And God wishes none to perish but for all to come to repentance. But if you go to hell, it will be because you rejected God's provision so you would not have to go there. And, of course, it describes here you're being consumed with fire. Now, sadly, the Seventh-day Adventists and the Jehovah's Witness say, yeah, you're consumed, you're annihilated. A man, maybe a wicked man, goes to hell for a second, and he's obliterated, and that's the end. No, the best interpreter of Scripture is Scripture itself. The consumption that the Bible speaks of is that when Christ will be revealed from heaven with His mighty angels and flaming fire, He shall deal out eternal retribution to those who do not know God. And the word for eternal retribution is the same adjective to describe the eternal God or eternal life. To say that God is not eternal, then you might conclude hell is not forever. And if you remember that rich man who died and went to hell, why did he go to hell? Because he was rich? No. Because he was unbelieving. Remember, under the old covenant, when a person died, he went to Sheol. The Greek word is Hades, but the Hebrew word is Sheol. And there are two compartments to Sheol, unrighteous Sheol and righteous Sheol. The unbeliever went to unrighteous Sheol. And the rich man who died, he was in Hades, unrighteous Sheol, and he lifted up his eyes being in torment. Righteous Sheol, where Old Testament saints went, was emptied out, Ephesians tells us, at the ascension of Christ. So today when you die, if you're saved, absent from the body, present with the Lord, if you're lost, you go to unrighteous Sheol, termed in the New Testament, Hades. And someday Hades will be cast into the lake of fire. But here is a man 
who's in hell because of his unbelief. His wealth had captured him. And he pleads with Father Abraham that somehow he could have a warning to his brothers. Send Lazarus, who's in that righteous place, to go warn our brothers. And Jesus in that parable says, and besides all this, between us and you, there is a great chasm fixed so that those who wish to come over from here to you will not be able and that none may cross over from there to us. It's a reminder hell is forever when we study the Revelation. The false prophet and the Antichrist, two living human beings. They're not supernatural people. They're normal everyday people who give themselves to the evil one. They are cast into the lake of fire at the second coming. And at the end of the thousand-year reign of the Messiah, Satan is then cast into the lake of fire where the false prophet and the Antichrist are. In other words, they're still there a thousand years later because when a man dies and goes to hell, he is there forever. And so notice, it is in the last days that you have stored up your treasure. In this context, James is teaching that there is a time of future judgment when their gold and silver will be as worthless as rusted iron. And he uses this term, the last days. That's a term every Christian should know. The last days, according to Acts 2, began on the day of Pentecost. On the day of Pentecost, when that miracle happened, we studied it some weeks back, where they spoke all these different languages, real languages that they had never learned before, and not just the languages, but the dialects. Peter stood up and he said, this is what the prophet Joel said would happen in the last days. And so as we will come to this fifth chapter, we're going to see that James, like all the New Testament writers, speaks of the imminent return of Christ. That is, Christ could come back today. Nothing has ever needed to take place prophetically for Jesus to come back. He could come back today. His return is imminent. Now, the second coming, when he comes back to the earth and he sets his feet on the Mount of Olives, that is a prophetically driven event. All kinds of prophecy are yet to be fulfilled. I was doing a funeral on Tuesday, and I reminded them of an individual who said to me, I, I, I wish we lived in biblical times. And I said to that gentleman, we are living in biblical times. We are seeing prophecy in our lifetime being fulfilled. The end of time prophecy that will drive the second coming will be like the days of Noah, days of ongoing violence, lawlessness, sexual immorality, and the days of Lot, days of sexual perversion, transgenderism, and homosexuality. And the super sign that God gives in Scripture is He would gather the Jews at the end of time before the second coming of Messiah back into Israel. God is at work. And you almost have to be blind if you know your Bible even a little bit. Christ could come at any moment, and that's why I would say that we are in the last of the last days. But understand, he is writing about the rich man so that the saved man would not have the same kind of attitude, that we might be careful to protect our hearts, that our testimony might be good and pleasing to the Lord. Now, that's the folly of stagnant wealth. Secondly, on your outline, the outcry of sinful wealth. The outcry of sinful wealth. Notice verse 4 here in this chapter. Behold, the pay of the laborers who mowed your fields, which has been withheld by you, cries out against you. And the outcry of those who did the harvesting has reached the ears of the Lord of Sabaoth. 
James now moves on from hoarding wealth to getting wealth the wrong way. The wicked rich were not only guilty of hoarding, but they were also guilty of sinfully acquiring their wealth. They were guilty of defrauding the pay of the laborers who mowed your fields and which has been withheld by you. Now remember, back in Bible times in Israel, there was no labor unions, no labor laws, no one to protect you. And many times, if you had a bad boss, you just took it on the chin. So here's this rich landowner and this poor man who needs a place to work, and he has no place to work, but this rich man who will hire him. And of course, in that day, you would be paid on a daily basis. And so this man who had mowed the rich man's field, and the tense of the verb is it was completed, meaning he had done what he was asked to do. He had completed his work, and yet the text says here, his pay was withheld. Maybe the landowner made up some kind of technicality. Well, you got here late, or you didn't work quite hard enough. I didn't see enough sweat on your brow. I don't like the exact way you plowed those furrows, or I'm just not going to pay you today. And please understand, if this man was not paid, it was a great hardship. And again, this is how it took place, and that's why Jesus can tell a parable in Matthew 20. Most of you know this parable. When evening came, the owner of the vineyard said to his foreman, call the laborers and pay them their wages, beginning with the last group to the first. Jesus said in this parable, because at this time in history, payday was not someday, payday was every day. And it was necessary for your survival to buy the food, to sustain the family. Put out on your margin next to this verse, Deuteronomy 24, 14 and 15. Let me read to you what Moses said. You shall not oppress a hired servant who is poor and needy, whether he is one of your countrymen or one of your aliens who is in your land and your towns. You shall give him his wages on his day before the sun sets, for he is poor and sets his heart on it, so that he will not cry against you to the Lord, and it become sin in you. Or listen to Leviticus 19, 13. You shall not oppress your neighbor nor rob him. The wages of a hired man are not to remain with you all night until morning. You know, when I was 11 years old, I spent two weeks cleaning up this man's yard, trimming the trees, all the hedges, cutting the lawn, weeding all the, the beds, and it was time for payday. He said, we'll come back tomorrow. And he put me off for two weeks. And in the heart of an 11-year-old boy, it certainly was not an issue of survival like the people in James's day, but I felt maybe just an inkling of what these folks were feeling. And let me say parenthetically, I am embarrassed as a pastor when I hear of a born-again Christian who has not paid a debt that they owe. And of course, that's why leadership in the church must be qualified. He must have a good reputation with those outside the church, that is, with unbelievers. That's why when we look for leaders in the church, elders, deacons, whatever form of leadership, we want to make sure their testimony in terms of Paying debts is pure. It's a terrible thing when we lose our testimony over money. Behold the pay of the laborers who mowed your fields and which has been withheld by you. So he's describing the rich man who hires these laborers who've completed their work, but they have not been paid. It has been withheld. 
held. Pastor Carl reminds us that James is writing about the rich man so that the saved man will not have the same kind of attitude, so that we may be careful to protect our hearts so that our testimony may be pleasing to the Lord. If you enjoyed today's message, you can order a CD or DVD copy by calling Search the Scriptures at 877-787-7478 and requesting program James 012. Please remember that you can support the ministry of Search the Scriptures by calling or you can give online at searchthescriptures.org. Your generous donation plays an important role in providing biblical teaching and spreading the gospel. Please join us tomorrow as we continue to search the scriptures.